0: 2014 will go down as the warmest year around the globe in recorded history. 2015 was the hottest year since climate records began. Your show this July was the single hottest month in recorded history. Australia sweltered through its hottest
1: spring on record. Climate change is now affecting every country on every continent.
0: The rate is a great concern. What do you think that rate does? Oh, it's human activity. We have everything we need. Some still doubt that we have the will to act. But I say. The will to act is itself
2: a renewable resource. Good evening, everyone. My name is Blanche Burley, and I am a postdoctoral researcher at the Sydney Environment Institute, and I will be the moderator for tonight's discussion. In order to begin, I want to acknowledge that we meet on stolen and unceded Kulin country and to pay respects to Boon and Woi elders past, present and emerging. I also want to acknowledge any Indigenous people who may be here with us tonight. In doing so, I want to acknowledge that Indigenous people all around the world are, as Millie Telford from Seed Youth Indigenous Climate Network says, often affected first and worst by climate change, but also that they are often leading the way on climate action. For many Indigenous peoples, climate change is not a recent phenomenon. Rather, as Potawatomi scholar Kyle Powers white says, Climate change is experienced as a kind of déjà vu of colonisation. In his words, this is our ancestors' dystopia now. For a more pop culture reference, a recent tweeter framed it as, dystopia is a white people word for what if all that shit happened to us? Indigenous people are encouraging us to recognise that colonialism, or the perhaps even bigger logic of extractivism, is the root cause of greenhouse gas emissions and the social injustices that drive what we term climate change impacts. Such an understanding opens up the questions of when and for whom and under what circumstances does climate change constitute an emergency? Or to put it otherwise, whose emergencies matter, get recognized and responded to, and how? I also wanted to acknowledge the summer that we have had and that many of you in the audience may have had incredibly traumatic experiences in the last few months. We hear you. We know this is not okay and we want to say sorry for your losses.
3: The idea for this
2: panel arose well before this summer of HAL had even begun, way back in September, but it is evidently impossible to discuss climate change without talking about the fires and the smoke, the dust storms, the hail, the brown rain, the fish kills and now the floods. It has been a summer when the larger global climate emergency has been rendered unavoidably apparent in the localised bushfire, cyclone, air pollution and flooding emergencies. This summer has thus both emphasised the need for tonight's discussion, but has also complicated the discussion. The idea for the panel discussion arose through colleagues having chats in corridors, after meetings and before lectures, about our hesitations about the climate emergency framing. We rarely had time to sit down and discuss these at length, and even when we did, we got stuck, confused, unsure what to do with those hesitations, concerns, thoughts, and ideas. I think this is because it is particularly tricky territory, and also because the situation is constantly changing, as this summer has shown. And so, we thought, why not have the conversation publicly? So here we are. So a bit of context to explain some of those hesitations. Climate justice is a long-running movement which has spoken back to white and technocratic climate action efforts on the basis that different people are differently vulnerable to climate change, that those who are most affected by climate change are often those who are least responsible for emissions, and that those people are thus the best place to inform, design, and lead towards sustainable, equitable, and resilient worlds. In contrast to climate action, which primarily requires emissions reductions, Climate justice also requires the transformation of society away from colonial capitalism and participatory democratic decision-making that includes and promotes those who have been previously marginalized. These two elements of climate justice are typically time-intensive and require broad and deep community engagement as well as emotional, political, personal and cultural reflection, critique and transformation. The climate emergency movement is asking governments and other institutions to declare that we are living in a climate emergency, and to use that declaration to then implement strategies to rapidly reduce emissions. Over the last couple of years, the climate emergency movement has had really impressive successes. There are now over 1,300 governments around the world that have declared a climate emergency, and we have seen the phrase awarded Oxford Dictionary's 2019 Word of the Year. While the climate itself is changing so rapidly, it is a massive relief that efforts to get climate change into mainstream conversations and recognised as a significant issue by governments is finally happening and also happening quickly. I want to acknowledge that this has only been achieved by consistent, thorough, hard work from citizen activists all around the world and to thank them for this. Of course, one of the big questions is what happens after an institution declares, and I know our panellists are going to discuss that. But an additional issue is that it is not apparent that declaring a climate emergency necessarily means that justice considerations and strategies will be enacted. Australia's federal government is a good example to think with. We are asking the government to recognise the climate emergency. But it is the government who is the biggest blocker of climate action in the nation and this is the same government that is actively harassing, assaulting, targeting and demonising climate activists including through the emergency services such as the police. Keeping in mind that declaring a state of emergency gives states additional powers, powers that override citizens' rights, forces me to ask whether using the language of emergency might backfire on us, as it is a slippery slope from emergency to military to authoritarianism. We have seen words such as sustainability, resilience and even intergenerational equity co-opted to support whatever platform our right-wing climate-denying government wants, so I personally am wary that emergency may become another of these words. We know that the Northern Territory intervention which gave the government the power to exempt themselves from the Racial Discrimination Act was justified because the situation was framed as an emergency by the government. So we're not in uncharted territory. We have examples of this in recent Australian history. Over the summer, we've seen the most phenomenal efforts from our emergency services, but we have also seen Scott Morrison firstly decide that such emergencies are state government issues which do not require any attention from him, and then rapidly change tack and make his first response to send in the military. Watching footage from Malakuta and Narooma and all along the south coast over summer, I wondered why the military hadn't been brought in earlier. Yet at the same time, I think we also need to keep in mind that this was in effect our federal government's only notable action on the issue. Emergency in their minds signifies militarised response. So some of the concerns I have about all of this is how emergency framings can be used to justify or be co-opted by reactive, top-down, authoritarian responses that do nothing to prevent the problems or contribute to any kind of actual, sustainable, just, equitable world. Yes, we know that we need to rapidly reduce emissions, but we also need to ask questions about the processes through which emissions reductions are implemented, and who is engaged, included, and empowered through such processes, and who is not. We need to ask where and how power is redistributed or concentrated through carbon markets, renewable technologies, geoengineering and various other policies, including our responses to emergencies. As Tony Birch writes, while the current situation we face at both a local and global level may legitimately be described as urgent, as it often is, a state of desperation will be counterproductive. Strategies to deal with climate change require both immediate action and long-term policies. Although it may appear to be a counterintuitive statement, it would be a mistake to rush to action in some instances when more thoughtful consideration and time are actually required. As researchers, we are by necessity engaged in slow, thoughtful work on climate change, yet we also feel the urgency and pressure to respond quickly to these situations. How we navigate the competing temporalities of the required slow and rapid work is one of the key questions driving tonight's panel. These are incredibly complex questions and I doubt that we are going to have many answers tonight. So the point of the panel is not for us to have the last last word,
3: word. but But to hopefully hopefully spark spark some conversations. conversations. Okay, so enough from me. I'm going to introduce our panelists and then we will get into it. So I'll introduce you all and then you can come up. Uh, So, firstly, I'd like to introduce Lauren Rickards. Um, I'll just flick, sorry. Uh, Who is a geographer who works on all things climate change. She's a lead author on the upcoming IPCC's sixth assessment report for Working Group 2, whose focus is impacts and adaptation. Next, we have Bronwyn Lay. Bronwyn is the Ecological Justice Coordinator at Jesuit Social Services has a background in law, used to be a French firefighter and also runs RMIT's Climate Change Exchange. Mittal Vahan Vati Vati, is a lecturer in the Sustainability and Urban Planning team here at RMIT and she works on disaster prevention and community resilience planning with a focus on the co-creation of knowledge with communities. Bryony Towers is a researcher in the Centre for Urban Research and her areas of expertise include bushfire education, disaster risk reduction and resilience. Finally, we have David Meeklejohn, who's recently submitted a PhD at RMIT Exploring. Amongst some other things, how local governments are responding after declaring a climate emergency. He is also the Executive Officer of the Northern Alliance for Greenhouse Action. So we have a real wealth of knowledge there, so if you can please make them welcome, Lauren is going to speak first.
4: Thanks, Blanche, and thank you everyone for coming. Not only have you given up your personal time or work time tonight, but you've also, I know, Um, not gone to some of the other amazing things on the Sustainability Living Festival program. So we appreciate you choosing this one. Um, As Blanche said, I'm uh, in the Centre for Urban Research and I co-lead the Climate Change Transformations Research Program with my co-leader here. And we've been giving out um, our pamphlets here that we're we're proud of. (laughs) Um, And I also teach into the Sustainability and Urban Planning area um, and one of my co-teachers, um, Nushin here and David as well, we teach a course on climate change responses. So anyone wanting a kind of a in-depth uh, semester-long analysis of this, um, get in touch. <laughs> okay, so as Blanche said, um, I'm in the IPCC and I'm actually just recently back from a big meeting uh, on the latest in impacts, uh, adaptation and vulnerability around the world, um, Now, for various reasons, we're not allowed to talk about what we talk about in the meetings. Uh, However, I did want to take this opportunity to just kind of context um, and uh, contextualise and preface this discussion of climate emergency with just a little bit of a reminder of the physical situation that we're facing um, because it's pretty sobering. So IPCC produces lots of reports, gets a lot of flack for being really, really slow. I've got to say, as someone working in it, it does not feel slow. <laughs> it feels very, very fast and very um, stressed. Um, but nevertheless, generally speaking, produces slow reports, but it started producing many more special reports to try to keep the pace up, partly because the planet itself is speaking back and things are changing so quickly that we're having to adapt and uh, work a lot more quickly as well. So I wanted to touch on three special reports that have come out over the last year or so. This was actually back in September 2015, or 2018, I should say, the the report on how to keep global warming to 1.5 degrees. A lot of people said, you know, why this kind of focus on 1.5 degrees, Paris set two degrees, what's the big deal? Well, the kind of nuts and bolts, um, the kind of crux of these hundreds of pages is this, that... Half degree makes a big difference. So we're already at average global warming of one degree. You can already see what's happening. Half a degree makes a big difference, and it makes a big difference to a lot of particularly vulnerable groups around the world. So we just need to keep in mind the need to really, really squeeze those emissions down. Like we're not just saying, oh, let's you know move back from six, let's kind of pull it back towards three. Every half degree makes a difference. So that's the first message around the climate emergency then we had a, another special report, Climate Change and Land, came out in August last year. Uh, and here uh, there's a few major, um, major messages to come out it was partly an effort to point um, away from energy towards this kind of implications for land. The first thing is that we really, really need lots of healthy land to draw down and to reverse climate change to actually draw down emissions, but that at the same time you've got this feedback where climate change is actually negatively affecting land and those degradation processes, as we've seen with the fire, are causing big pulses. The message for that for the climate emergency is that we have to stop these tipping points and these uh, feedbacks at the start. Once the feedbacks get out of control, they're very, very, very hard to stop. Okay? It's like a kind of big ball rolling down a hill. So, again, from a climate emergency perspective, really important message here. The other thing about it is that not only does land... Um, not draw down so you actually lose that potential to sequester carbon but it actually um, produces these emissions. And one of the most high-profile examples of this is permafrost and you've probably seen just over the last week or so um, more and more of the kind of evidence of the incredible amounts of um, emissions coming from this. This is particularly methane, which is especially powerful, um, you know, nearly 30 times more potent than climate, uh, carbon dioxide. So again, just an important reminder of the urgency of trying to stop these feedbacks getting out of control. That brings me to the third special report released in September last year on oceans and cryosphere. We don't hear a whole lot about this, uh, but generally what we're talking about is a disaster that's beyond the sort of visibility of us land-dwelling mammals. There's a whole lot of incredible um, impacts that are going on under the sea. Uh, And part of that is just simply a result of the increasing temperatures. Part of it is a result of the extreme temperatures, so heat waves. And part of it is that the extra bit that we tend to forget, which is that the extra carbon dioxide in the atmosphere is acidifying the ocean as well. When you put these things together, you get a really, really serious uh, number of feedbacks. One of the chapters in that report is on extremes, abrupt changes and managing risks. And I can tell you that this is probably the main theme that the IPCC is starting to look at, non-linear changes. So this is um, an extremely uh, important new area of research and there's not a whole lot of stuff around to provide um, examples of it, but fortunately kind of, Australia keeps providing these awesome examples of cascading and compounding risks. Now, Tasmania summer of 2015, 2016, it's hard to even remember it in the haze of extremes that we've had here. It's hard to even remember, you know, back in December 2019. But back then we had a whole series of things, lightning storms, fires in what were fire refugia, so things that had never been burnt before, Gondwan and um, vegetation, et cetera, burning. Then you had um, extreme precipitation floods um, and you also had around that time an extreme heat wave down around Tasmania. All of these things have actually been occurring literally in the last three to four weeks again. So we're getting a repeat of these patterns which is starting to indicate how important it is to remember the sequencing and the compounding and the cascading of this and the two sort of general metaphors, one is the domino effect. So the first domino might not get you, but the fifth one might. And also those bricks look a little bit cheery. I couldn't find a good image of, like, nasty-looking bricks, but basically <laughs> compound effects, okay? It's just one thing after another, and that is what actually breaks your adaptive capacity. So I'm not really a cheery kind of person these days. <laughs> so... Um, anyway so yeah just a flash forward and we're providing the ipcc with another awesome case study for the next report so just feel really proud about that but yeah we've got it all happening here and just look at that koala on the fence here in the flood don't look too long it makes you cry Okay, so back to that first report I mentioned, one of the things about it is that it's very much focused on mitigation on the future. And for those of you who can't see it and who can't read French like myself, the quote there is, as for the future, your job is not to foresee it, but to enable it. And the IPCC is an extremely conservative institution for all sorts of reasons, Uh, But it is starting to get more and more bolshy in trying to get across this message of we have to act now. And as I said, every additional half degree makes a huge difference. However, what the IPCC is also emphasising, and many others around the world have too, including the climate justice movement, is we have to be really, really careful of the get out of jail cards, the fake solutions, because they are starting to proliferate and produce their whole, their own sets of cascading and compounding impacts. Wishful thinking, risk displacement, self-seeking behaviour. So just to give you some, a little kind of insight, one of the things uh, the report talks about are different emissions futures, and it's the one on the left here that we want. That's where the grey bit is the fossil fuels reduces really rapidly. When we don't reduce the fossil fuel emissions rapidly, we get yellow, which is where we actually have to make amends by using things like carbon capture and storage or carbon capture and storage combined with bioenergy, etc. All these sorts of things that are discussed, but it's really important to keep in mind That they are um, technically unproven, they rely on geological stability, Uh, they implicate huge land use changes, Um, and they also uh, tend to endorse or justify the ongoing perpetuation of the fossil fuel economy. So we just need to be um, cautious. We need to have our critical radars up as we think, oh, good, oh, look at this, this will save us. Actually, no. I could equally have talked about geoengineering, but those ideas are so harebrained it's hard to believe they're actually serious. Another um, kind of uh, fake solution we need to watch for, and I do really endorse adaptation resilience in Australia, and I could talk about that at length. However, doing that in the absence of mitigation in, as a replacement for mitigation actually just doesn't make sense. We won't actually have the capacity to adapt um, to uh, extreme levels of warming. Likewise, adaptation and mitigation need to go together. So what we've got recently with this kind of flip that we've seen in the federal government from not talking about um, climate change to suddenly embracing it and talking about adaptation is what I conceptualise as a shift from an individualist mindset where nature's benign and you sort of no problem. They've sort of given in to kind of pressure from up here, the hierarchicist, which is where you see nature um, – It needs to be preserved. We need to actually do something. And there's a prescription on your behavior, which is the climate change reality. And they're like, okay, 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 I get it. I get it. But we're going to flip into the fatalist. Okay. Which is to say, oh, well, you know, our future is determined. It's a warming planet. So all we can do now is to individualistically and selfishly adapt. So that again is something to watch out for. So overall, we have a double emergency. We need in my opinion, extreme rapid climate action, mitigation action. uh, And we also need climate justice. And what does this mean? It means mitigating and adapting now, both together, quickly, and it means doing it well, doing it properly and doing it as we can do it because we've already proven, uh, even just the fact that we're all here today, that we do have the will and we do have the capacity. Okay, thanks. Thanks.
5: Thanks, Lauren. Um, I feel both hopeful and sad after that and knowing a bit more. So I'm Broman, and I work for Jesuit Social Services and the, um, what we're working with is not the notion of uh, climate justice. That's inclusive within a bigger, bigger ecological justice, which is our framing. So it's environmental and social justice coming together and it comes from... Um, a capacity, uh, within our programs, within our organisation, we're trying to listen to both the cry of the earth and the cry of the poor. So we also work with the most marginalised. That's our vocation. That's our mission. In um, And so that means we work in the criminal justice system. And so we work with prisoners. We work with people living in really difficult intergenerational trauma. Uh, we're in Sydney, um, Northern Territory and uh, most of Victoria so in terms of this question, can we um, – the compatibility of the climate emergency and climate justice, part of ecological justice for us is reflection and relationality. So we relate to uh, – we see the earth as kin, we see as as human communities living within habitat, and we start from that basis. So also because we work within um, the criminal justice system, we have a big understanding of – power and how power moves and we were also present with the the NT intervention so how words like um, emergency can be co-opted by government to then have this authoritarian outcomes and also take away human rights and also take away land. So we have I mean I think there's a lot of concern around climate emergency and as we've been thinking through it we've been thinking through it as an organisation and also been thinking through it with colleagues at RMIT is uh, understanding that climate emergency arose as a as a request or demand for action, it's a civic civic obligation and it's not necessarily can't be conflated with the state of emergency. However, what I've seen over summer is I noticed myself, who's, who's quite um, anti-military, wishing that the army was present on the ground and it was confusing for me because I felt that while I know the, the, the fears of... Having the military in the domestic space, that's not their role, that's not their mandate and that's not um, their legal obligation either. So many problems in the fires were to do with the lack of resourcing for state emergency services, which comes from the federal government. The state emergency services are quite capable of doing the work on the ground and responding to hazards and disasters and we do not want that space militarised. But I myself was begging for it and hoping that they came in because there is that... In the emergency, when you viscerally feel it um, or, or when you can see it's happening to your people and there's smoke haze and, and there is um, that very primal response for hardcore action and the military represents that in our political imagination, I think. And I think that's something we really need to be careful of because that's, that's not a just outcome. In, in my and there's so many the cascading effects that Lauren was talking about there in terms of um in terms of land and the impacts of climate change. In the work that we do, we can also see there's all these social compounds and like the th- climate change is a, a a trauma, an inequity multiplier. And so there's a lot of questions that like if we have fast mitigation that doesn't think and we need fast mitigation we desperately need it but how is it going to be distributed how like how is it going to be is it going to be democratically distributed because i mean i've been reading the (laughs) been reading the australian financial review for a while it feels like a confession but they're um they're they're like this whole switch over summer to hardcore mitigation and something in me is a cynic. And so when... <laughs> also Andrew Bolt wrote about climate change this week and something in the back of my head of both of these goes, what What? I need to be... We need to be a little bit careful here. <laughs> like these switches, it is... it is Capital has moved into this space and it does make sense. It makes sense for ethical reasons, but when it makes sense for capital, we also need to be really careful how it's distributed. So I think of... Um, like who's going to benefit from this and also who's going to suffer because climate, what we also think through is things like ecological privileges and where power concentrates to give them. And so what I understand, part of the problem that we have in this, uh, we haven't yet got language for what's happening because it's happening so fast. So um, I just think... so we've been thinking also through ecological privileges and when i look at the some of the communities we work with like in western sydney mount druitt it is like they have no green canopy bad public transport really bad food security energy insecurity badly insulated houses like it's a, so for these populations when this, they were, they were also hit with the harder the highest temperatures they're up for 49 50 like for the extreme heat the smoke haze settled right there And so all of these coming together creates new groups of marginalised people and exacerbates marginalisation hardcore. So um, when we think through mitigation, what's going to happen to these populations as well? Like is it going to be a top-down, which is what... That's the easiest way to get it done, is a top-down command-control economy is like... China can get it done quite simply but what how, how much do we lose and we need to be super careful super the advocacy around that it's finding the compatibility between climate justice and fast action so in order not to perpetuate more what I would call ecological violence and social violence so they're just some of the things that we're thinking through I don't think there's an ant I think it's a really it's an iterative and, like, how, one of the questions all, I also have is how can you think under emergency conditions? Is it possible? What does thinking mean then? How to be reflective? And I, I really love that quote. And so... Um, And part of it is because it is all unprecedented and you scratch the surface of one problem, like the community out at Mount Truitt, also their domestic family violence increases hardcore under um, smoke haze and extreme heat, so exacerbates all that. So it's how to think through enable. So part of this for me is um, being very present to the conditions of our times and also um, keeping that relationality so we, we learn new skills of how to actually listen to the cry of the earth and the cry of the poor because they may be going off simultaneously and that's something we really need to address. So that's just some things we've been thinking through.
1: Hi, everyone. My name is Mithul, and I am a lecturer at um, Centre for Urban Research. Um, My focus has been on disasters, disaster recovery, and what leads to building community resilience in the long term. So scaling down climate justice to disaster justice, um, I'll speak to uh, that. Um, There is a difference between hazards and disasters, Uh, disasters are not natural. Uh, In olden days, they used to be considered as act of God, but eventually the the scholarship has um, evolved and we now understand that disasters happen when natural hazards meet human society and to be specific, it's vulnerability and exposure. So this actually defines... Inequity. Those who are more exposed to hazards, they will be more impacted. Those who are more vulnerable, less prepared, um, such as fishing communities living at, on, on coasts, will be more exposed to uh, tsunami. Um, People who have less uh, financial resources would be more vulnerable because their homes are not well built. Maybe they are living on fragile landscape, which have landslides. So um, disasters expose these vulnerabilities and those who are vulnerable are more impacted, and research has shown time and time again that these communities also face difficulty in recovery. And some have never recovered. So there is uh, ingested at a spatial level as where you are located. But in context of climate, it also exists temporally. We cannot predict what the future is going to be like, the time scale. Uh, it is highly unpredictable, for example, after um, before Katrina in U.S., research suggests that the levee that was built was predicted, was designed based on 100-year worst projections of uh, a cyclone, a, a hurricane. And because there were very few people living there, it was more like a rural area, um, they just designed it which could not withstand category four or five hurricane because they thought there's just small amount of people. They are also rural. And so we don't need to build levy that can withstand category four or five uh, hurricane. And we saw the devastation. So with poverty, with spatial mar- uh, marginalization comes injustice. The, some of these people have not yet recovered uh, after so many years. So, um, so, to speak about emergency in context of disaster, disaster has these phases. Um, the Emergency Management Victoria categorizes it as PPRR, so prevention, preparedness, response, and recovery. Response, so immediately after disaster, it is emergency phase, typically suggested lasting f- between weeks to months, um, when the, all the emergency personnel rushes in to help, evacuate, uh, uh, preserve, or uh, contain, which we saw during recent fires. But then they move out, and their work is done. And the the problem, um, the cha- the challenge I find, and I have no answers to it, that emergency term during disaster evokes this urgency, and rapid action. And similarly, in climate change space, uh, the term emergency begs for rapid action. But then the mandates are for the emergency management services to come in, do their work, and go away. But does this mean that people who are vulnerable... um, the flora and fauna which is vulnerable, would it be taken care of after the emergency phase is over uh, when people have moved on to recovery phase? Um, So I, I leave you with this question. Thank you.
6: Hi, I'm Bryony and I work with all of these wonderful people at the Centre for Urban Research at RMIT and my research focuses on a thing called child-centred disaster risk reduction and while we're talking about um, terms or concepts being co-opted, there's one for you. Um, So, child-centered disaster risk reduction has its origins in the work of organizations like Save the Children and UNICEF and Plan International, so child rights organizations predominantly working in majority world countries. And around the mid-2000s, they started doing this incredible work um, led by Nick Hall um, from Plan International in the UK. with children in the Philippines and El Salvador, where they were actually providing the space for children to learn about disaster risk in their communities and then enabling their, uh, enabling their voices, um, and then supporting them to take action to reduce disaster risk. And that actually led to some pretty impressive actions on the part of different children. Uh, Some children in El Salvador actually recognised that there was a really high risk of landslide being caused by illegal quarrying in their local area, and they blockaded the road to the quarry and educated the the lorry drivers about the risk that their work was posing to the community. And the the lorry drivers went and found somewhere else to extract their stone. In another um, in southern Leyte in the Philippines, a young girl named Honey, I think she was about fifteen at the time, recognised that where their school was built at the bottom of a hillside was at really high risk of landslide, and so she started educating herself. She went to she she got information from the Mines and um, Geosciences Bureau about the risk of landslide. She educated her classmates and in the end they ran a letter writing campaign, they got the local mayor on board and they actually lobbied to have their whole school move to another location. Um, there was a lot of opposition to that. The local shop owners didn't want the school moved because they were going to lose the lunch the lunchtime trade from the students. Um, but that's an example of what is possible when children and young people have access to knowledge and information, have a platform to express their views, and are supported and to participate in decision making about their own community, about their community's development. And I think these are the kinds of things that we really need in communities right now. But I just see over the last 10 years since I've been working in this area, opportunities for children to participate or access knowledge and information is just being stripped away more and more. And I think that emergency framing is really interesting because what tends to happen um, in you know, disaster risk management, disaster risk reduction um, as it relates to children is that the greater the risk, the more top-down, prescriptive, patriarchal and non-participatory are the approaches to actually educating and involving children in decisions about their safety. Um, I was really dismayed to read the Alice Springs uh, declaration on education that was released on the 12th of december last year um, this was signed off by all state and ter- territory education ministers um, and there's no reference to climate change in that document which will actually guide education policy in this country for the next 10 years uh, the melbourne declaration which pre- which preceded that did make one specific reference to climate change as a social and environment, as a complex social and environmental issue, that students needed to be prepared to think critically about and to be able to, to problem solve about. Um, so while that uh, while that document was being endorsed by every state and territory education minister in Alice Springs. Um, the Arenda people up the road were talking to The Guardian about how climate change poses a specific threat to their very survival. Um, and then I think Dan Tehan had the nerve in his press release to talk about how that Alice Springs declaration was actually going to provide uh First Nations, children and youth with better opportunities for education. So I think these are just some of the issues that kind of emerge for me as I think about, you know, the climate emergency and climate justice and disaster risk management and disaster risk reduction. The one thing that gives me hope are children and young people themselves. What we're not doing for them or with them, they're just doing themselves. Um, and the school strike movement is a perfect example of that um so yeah I think the best we can do at this point is support them as much as we possibly can but also I think be really careful about the co-optation of those those terms that may have originally had um yeah been well-intentioned but when yeah when put in the hands of you know authoritarian governments can become very dangerous
7: So I'm going to talk to a little bit about the climate emergency movement um, as it's emerged through the local government sector. Um, the uh, Lauren had the um, – sorry, Blanche had the picture up earlier of the um, rapid expansion of uh, governments around the world, and it's primarily been in local governments that have declared climate emergencies. The city of Darabin in Melbourne's inner north was the first in the world to do this. Um, and it's one of the councils I work with, and we're trying to work out – Well, okay, we've declared a climate emergency, what do you do now? And it's this idea of uh, how it's being used. And this is really a space that local government uh, has worked in for a long time. But the climate emergency movement and seeing things through that lens mean that they have to rethink and rework uh, a lot about their approaches. So... Local government has been, uh, as I say, quite active in terms of trying to reduce emissions and trying to uh, increase the resilience of its communities uh, in responding to climate change uh, through mitigation and adaptation programs. It's got a range of tools at its, uh, at, at its reach, including local regulations. Uh, it can provide infrastructure, deliver services and so on. It advocates on behalf of its community to others. Um, and it carries out engagement with its community. The climate emergency movement, the things it has done is that it has accelerated, uh, and it's intended to accelerate, um, much more the degree of action that's taking place within local government. And as a motivator within councils, that's actually quite powerful because uh, for councils that have declared a climate emergency, the argument that they can go to other Branches. It's often the sustainability teams within a within a council can go to other branches, whether it's planning or it's uh, uh, traffic management or whatever, and say we need this done. And instead of getting, well, they still get the usual resistance that they might have got in the past, but now they can say, yeah, we're we're doing it because we've signed a climate emergency movement, and we need these extra resources, we need this action, and we need this to happen faster. So it's a really useful motivating uh, factor for work internally. It also helps in terms of providing a series of guidelines or a framework which local governments think about. So you'll often hear, and there's been a bit of talk in recent days about the federal government moving towards signing up towards net zero emissions by 2050. Climate emergency movements for local governments generally bring that forward to 2030, and so it's a very rapid change that they're wanting to see. And that means that it automatically rules out some things that local governments may have considered in the past just as an example it might be things like investment in gas so you running when you're running swimming pools which a lot of local governments do you've often had big gas plants which uh, help cool the pool and provide air conditioning and so on those are getting ruled out now by councils because they say that's just not feasible under a climate emergency why are we investing in something that's going to be there for 20 30 years if we're moving to net zero emissions um It also means an expansion of the role of local government and this works against the inherent conservatism of a lot of local government in terms of advocating uh, to others. Local governments are very good at asking for, you know, state government to do things or the federal government to do things, but also now they're actually looking at who else do they work with sideways, if you like. What are the other uh, sectors that they work with? So, I work on a uh, network with other uh, environmental groups and social welfare groups on on a network called One Million Homes, which is around looking at what we can do to uh, uh, improve energy efficiency of the uh, worst uh, housing in Victoria. And that's not a a, a network that local government has done a lot of work with in the past. In fact, you, you know, there's often been a bit of resistance and a bit of um uh, opposition between, say, environmental groups and social welfare groups around uh, certain responses to climate change, like investment in solar. Um, the other thing I think is that it means that local governments can step out into new spheres and do things uh, that they haven't done in the past and can act as a leader. So while local government can be conservative and, you know, when I talk about local government, you're talking about a whole range of local governments from City of Melbourne, where we are, out to rural shires. It's not all one homogenous um, uh, sphere. Um but some of the things that local governments are stepping out into doing now around the world, uh, as part of this response to a climate emergency, are a way of showing what can be done by others and to follow that. So, and and they can do it in a just way. And I think this is this question around you know can you do mitigation in a way that's both effective and just at the same time? I think there's good examples from local government that have done that. Darabin itself has run a program for the last three or four years called Solar Savers, which helps deliver um, solar to low-income households who may not have been able to afford the upfront cost of buying solar. They pay it back through at their rates at a a level, which means they're not out of pocket. So that works for one particular segment, and that's a way of local government recognising that this was a sector of the market that was being overlooked by commercial solar providers and that was able to, therefore uh, they were able to use a tool at their disposal in the rates mechanism to actually make it available to a bigger audience. And then you've got more recent examples. Uh, The City of London has recently announced the establishment of a retailer called London Power, uh, where it is going to be 100% renewable energy that it's going to source, and it's going to provide electricity at a lower tariff for low-income households. So these are the sort of things where local government can experiment and that others can lead from. And the climate emergency movement um, really helps them accelerate that, uh, that whole level of ambition. It's not without its problems for local government. Um, a number of our local governments, especially, for example, the Gippsland uh, shires in recent times, have told us they have a problem with the whole emergency terminology simply because it's so associated with response to immediate impacts. So that makes sense and th- that may make it difficult for them to uh, to sign up to the local government uh, climate emergency movement. Um it, there's other questions around when you, coming back to Melanch's point at the beginning, around what does it mean for local democracy? So uh, there are instances where Extinction Rebellion, for example, in the UK has set up citizens' assemblies and they've done that um, in uh, with the support of central government. So... What does that mean for how we govern? And what does that mean for local government and for existing forms of democracy? Does it call them into question? Does it mean that they're no longer adequate for the task? Well, I haven't got an answer for this. If anyone's got an answer, then please tell me. Um, But it does raise interesting questions about where we're going to be and how we're going to respond on this.
3: working okay so yeah thank you so much food for thought there so now that you've all had a chance to respond sort of with your primary response to the topic of can we achieve climate justice at emergency speed I have a question sort of for the whole panel which you can answer however you want to collectively and so the first one is around the issue of speed and temporality and so what do you all think about whether efforts to rapidly reduce emissions um, how can they contribute to rather than undermine climate justice um, or another way to ask the same question um, what are some of what is some of the slow work required for climate justice in both perhaps mitigation and adaptation and if any of you have examples of good or bad
4: practice on that issue of speed and justice. Um, I was just saying speed is problematic in various ways. Um, However, let's not completely write it off as well. I'm sure there's lots of sports people in this room and a lot of athletes indicate that you can do things very quickly and extremely skillfully. So there's not necessarily a relationship between doing things badly and doing things quickly. And I think we need to kind of remind ourselves of that. We also need to remind ourselves that there are multiple, multiple processes going on at once. So it's not like we just have to pick one. We're not just all in the one little family sedan <laughs> driving along. Okay, we're all on our just working on this metaphor as I go, our own little kind of <laughs> modes of transport, scooters, everything. Yeah. So you know, different groups in society can work on things in different ways. And just to kind of combine those two metaphors, we can also do it as a relay. <laughs> so some of us can work really quickly and then we can have a rest because we're tired. And I think tiredness and fatigue is going to be increasingly something that's extremely important to our whole general response. So I, I guess, yeah, I'm just trying to break down the kind of binary between speed, bad, um, hmm and, um, you know, slow good. Having said that, you know, there are obviously uh, real tensions there and so one of the sweet spots, I think, and um, David sort of touched on this, is where mitigation action, so things that actually reduce emissions, whether they were um, anticipatory emissions, so avoided emissions or whether it's actually carbon drawdown actually bring about a whole lot of co-benefits. And you just have to think here about the environmental injustices of living around a lot of fossil fuel-based combustion, whether it's around power plants or whether it's around heavily... Um, trafficked areas etc etc you just think about the kind of benefits that come from reducing our exposure to the immediate effects of that combustion and the far-reaching effects of doing so in terms of you know brain development heart development etc um, and you can see that there are sweet spots there so that's I think one of the kind of key things to angle for
5: thanks Lauren something that um in terms of the acceleration and the speed, one of the things that's really slow is humans. <laughs> and so one in the work that we've been doing, we've been looking at um, cultural change within the organisation. And so because it is an organisation that deals with hardcore issues, there has been a presumption when I first arrived that this green or environmental or ecological justice belongs to... The inner city, North affluent people, and is not for us who are tr- dealing with people getting out of prison, dealing with extreme substance abuse, and don't don't have money or capacity to buy organic food. So there was a, a hardcore resistance, even within because within the community services sector, the resources are really stretched. People are running in survival emergency all the time in in a, on a very grounded way. So to introduce this overarching. You know, ecological justice and climate emergency was almost was too much, but and this it has been the slow, persistent conversations and something I just uh, uh, that when you asked that question, Blanche, I was thinking through it is the collaboration, the listening, talking to partners and people that you don't expect to be talking to, like for example, talking we wouldn't expect to be talking to insurance companies, and now we are about the impacts on the ground, and and having. What we've also learned, because it is an unprecedented space, because it is accelerated, and our brains move a bit slower than what's happening in terms of the, the rollout of this, is that. Um, I just forgot it. <laughs> <laughs> I talked about a slow brain, and then my brain went slow. <laughs> No, I think we're learning new things. So when we go into these spaces, like we're doing trainings at the moment, um, we're suddenly learning through things through listening to each other and actually going into specific circumstances. And so I think it's this presumption that we know everything, we don't. And so part of the acceleration is to be ready for the unexpected and be ready for um, other people to give more information to us and then we put it all together.
1: So again, uh, speed in context of disasters, uh, there's an example where um, those who have survived after the recent bushfires, they want to have speedy recovery. They want their homes rebuilt as fast as possible, get back to their daily lives. There's no question to them seeking such speed. Um, on the other hand, governments have pressure to incorporate a climate change adaptation in the way they do reconstruction and social recovery. There are these competing demands there. How do you manage that? Where is the money coming from? How do you coordinate action? Um, and the examples I had looked, uh, uh, I had researched in India The government went with top-down approach, we will give you money, we will also bring builders to you, and you build whatever you want to build. Um, There was a lot of resistance to that. People said that we want freedom, we live in a democracy, this was in India, Um, and we want to decide where we want to build our house, how we want to build our house. Whether we want to employ laborers, builders, or just want to do it ourselves with the help of family and friends, leave it up to us. Don't dictate us. Um, And uh, a civil uh, uh, society group was successful in bringing change to the government recovery policy, and uh, it led to owner-driven reconstruction, where the responsibility of government was much more than just giving cash they had to set up coordination hubs they had to be present there to provide technical support social recovery support as well as overseeing the construction throughout all the phases uh, but the money was in the bank of people uh, they were in charge that that is how the power was given to the people and not kept in the hands of government but Uh, There was um, this thinking that if we do community-led, owner-led recovery, it will be super slow. But, in fact, that was the speediest recovery ever. In two years, 100,000 homes were built. People scavenged for materials from ruins because they wanted to save money. They had fixed amount in their bank fixed amount from insurance company, and they wanted to make the most of what was left around them. So if you give uh, what Amatya Sen says, capabilities, freedom of choice, but with support, not just freedom that, here's the money, you could do whatever, but also enabling environment, where there's all the support you need, then people-led recovery could be speedy, as well as... Um, Efficient. So, um, efficient is not the term I like. But uh, it, the houses were robust. They were culturally appropriate. They were affordable by people. They could maintain it over time. So, satisfaction level was somewhere above ninety percent to hundred percent. So, um, the the thing is that we uh, it is counterintuitive sometimes that um, if we do it top down, it will be fast. Um, if we'll have participatory approaches. It won't be fast, but it proved completely opposite there.
6: <laughs> I'm going to stick to talking about education. Um, so I think in 2016, Australia signed the Paris Agreement, which includes uh, the ed- like education as part of the Article 12, which is around increasing knowledge, awareness and and participation for um, the implementation of Paris. So that was 2016. So I'm just like, hurry up. (laughs) That's four years wasted. That's four years where children haven't been able to access any systematic approach to any kind of climate education. That's not to say that it's not happening in schools. Of course it's happening in schools. But it's teachers and students having to do it on their own without the support of government policy and funding. So hurry up with that. Um, But then the actual education process does need to slow right down. So we know from our work with children living in high bushfire risk areas, that it's a really deliberative process of raising their awareness and, you know, providing them with a better understanding of the risks that exist in their community and how, you know, hazard exposure, vulnerability and capacities all interact to kind of you know, put them potentially in harm's way, and then actually working on solutions to those problems, which is, again, a highly deliberative process of interacting with different experts and um, making mistakes and starting again. So, that's a very slow process. So, I guess my response to that question, I think that was, a you know, your question was about... Um, Mitigation and emissions reduction, which is not my area, so I'm not answering that question. But um, as far as education goes, I would say um, hurry up and slow down. Yeah.
3: Um,
7: I think in terms of the question of justice versus speed, um, I think it varies from one sector to another. I think about it for something like energy, for example, about investment in renewable energy. I grapple with this all the time. <laughs> Australia has actually one of the most highly distributed renewable energy systems in the world. We have 21% of households on our national average and much higher in some areas like south-east Queensland that have solar on their roofs have a form of renewable energy. The next country, I think from memory, was Belgium with about 9%. So Australia has a really different system to a lot of other countries that have tended to go for large-scale solar farms and large-scale wind farms. And we're only just getting into that now, which is causing problems for our grid in terms of we need big transmission lines, not going to the Latrobe Valley anymore, but going up to northeastern Victoria, for example. So... If climate change didn't exist, would I care where the electricity for this room comes from? Probably not. You know, it, it, I, I don't really care that it comes from if this ha- uh, building had solar panels on it. That's nice, but if it's more efficient to have that solar generated in uh, northeastern Victoria and transported down here, then is that a better thing? It's certainly going to get emissions down faster. Um, the market conditions are better for it, from and, and you know we exist within those market conditions. So, is it going to drive down emissions faster? Yes, it would. Is it going to do that in a just way? No, it's probably not, because you would actually want to see bigger investment in community energy projects, but and you know much more making solar available to a whole range of households but that's long hard slow work and then if you as a local government or as any form of government has said well we're going to declare a climate emergency and we're going to get to net zero in 10 years time by 2030 do we have can we afford the time to be able to do this so i don't have an answer for this it's just a a grappling with that particular problem i think in some areas it becomes really obvious that it can be damaging so in, in transport, for example, emissions from transport. There's a heavy reliance on, by a lot of levels of government, uh, on the switch to electric vehicles. That that's going to take care of everything, and and forget all the rubbish that was spoken in before the last election about. Um, you know, we're not supportive of electric vehicles or we're going to take away the utes of um, uh, tradies and so on. Uh, The decisions around electric vehicles aren't going to be made by state governments or by federal governments. They're going to be made by Toyota, Ford, Mitsubishi and so on. And we're going to lump it because we don't have any decision-making on that. So that's fine. Um, But it also means that a lot of governments are going, well, in terms of emissions reduction, electric vehicles, tick. That'll take care of that. We won't have to worry about it. And therefore, it downgrades the effort that you might want to put into things that are longer, slower, and more difficult, like trying to support sustainable transport modes of walking and cycling and public transport and, you know, clever urban design to actually achieve that. So, you know, looking at what we might be able to learn from European countries and apply that here, I mean, we've been grappling with that for 20, 30 years and haven't got it right yet. So why not just switch to electric vehicles? That's not a just solution, and that's an example where speed and if you're spe- if it's all about speed and reducing emissions quickly is potentially taking you down one path that precludes you investing in others.
3: Okay. Thanks, David. Um, so we are, of course, running out of time. Um, so with uh, that in mind, my final question for the panel, if you can respond quickly, is... Um, Do you see any issues with the use of emergency framing in terms of climate change that we haven't already discussed? Any further comments or thoughts on that? I know that I always sign the petitions pushing for an emergency declaration, but I feel sometimes conflicted about whether, you know, it's not the the way I would have written the petition, but, you know, I didn't get around to writing the petition, so I sign it.
4: (laughs) Well, I want to hear from the audience what what aspects of it we haven't heard. Sorry, I'll, uh. yeah. Um, me too, but I, I do. Um, I do
5: have. I just wanted to say again, I do have um, concerns about the the use of um, the conflation of the climate emergency with the state of emergency, and the different the difference between the legal ramifications of that, and and the demand for action in civil society. And I just there's one quote, there's this great book called uh, Climate Leviathan which runs through four possible political outcomes under climate change and one of the great quotes which I think is um, relevant is that climate change poses political problems for the current political order has no answer for. So that's where it brings it back to us to think through the,
1: the, the marriage of justice and speed. And
5: emergency...
1: Yeah, I'd like to hear from the audience, uh, but I think because of this term, um, there has been uh, an environment created where a lot of people have come together, but again, this whole um, idea of what it also brings along, um, speed and haste, is something I'm, I'm concerned about. So, yes, I don't have answers, but at least it has created an environment where everyone wants to be part of
6: I haven't really made up my mind about it, and I guess I'm more interested in knowing how children and young people conceptualise it and engage with it and whether it has any use for them in how they respond to this. So I'd kind of withhold any of yeah, my judgments or opinions about it because I think it's, yeah, adults need
3: to get out of the way.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
3: okay. Um, so Karen and Susie are going to come up and be our roving microphone um, people. Um, so just to clarify, a question is a short statement that ends
8: <laughs>
3: in an upwards intonation and... <laughs> Susie and Karen are under instruction that if you are taking too long to ask your question, they're going to slowly move closer to you and then hug you and take the microphone off you. <laughs> so that, that's our format for the questions from the floor. There's also some really great ones online. So while we get a few from the floor, I'm going to read through those and um, work out which ones to read out.
9: Thank you for a fantastic and inspiring panel. I also work at RMIT and I do some research into heat waves and uh, social vulnerability and I teach in social work. So, um, But I guess my comment and question is this, that I think I what scares me is that people think or can imagine the end of the world more than an end to our current political system and capitalism. And I think that's really quite frightening, because especially in Australia, uh, where we're so tied to this idea that the market will fix everything when we know the market's actually responsible for a lot of the injustice that happens. So I would be interested to hear a little bit from the panel uh, of maybe what they think around some of these, the responsibility maybe we also have, knowing that a lot of the injustice comes from the same system that oppresses people and destroys the environment. Around some of the suggestions, for instance, Green New Deal or something, that we can really push, and ultimately it mightn't be the people we have in government, both parties, I would argue, that would do that, but I wonder what you were thinking around how we can challenge the system.
5: I think I think uh mentioning the Green New Deal is really important. I think we haven't mentioned that thus far. And that is a, a plan, a program. There is something there that can be enacted and um and and I'm not sure the federal government has got that on their radar. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm grateful f- for you mentioning that. And one of the things is, like, I was watching something that came out last night. Australia is being looked at as a cautionary tale by a lot of people in the world. And I think you mentioned this. And I had some friend from, a friend from overseas ask me, you guys are going to come up with the toolkit for this. You know, you're going to, this is, this is the coalface, so to speak. And so, and at the same time, um, it, with speed as well as the prepping stuff. And the bugging out and that that kind of thing is something that we need to counter in the end-of-the-world scenarios and be a bit more courageous with the contemporary reality of the present and the challenges it gives us, such as really looking hardly at what just transitions means.
4: Thank you. Yeah, absolutely um, spot on. And I think we're increasingly coming to that realisation that there's a common problem here. We keep circling back social injustice, environmental injustice, climate change, etc. I guess there's two different sort of strands of attack that we need. One is to just start living differently. And so you think here of transition towns and a whole lot of what they call, you know, prefigurative politics of just lived the difference. And so there's a lot of really exciting things going on in that space. But at the same time, we've got to break out that sort of, you know, capitalism and sort of, you know, Caps Lock's big system as if it can just be kind of rolled out like an old computer. Like in actual fact, it's got a whole lot of different elements to it. We need to just start getting in there and hacking it. And, you know, some of the hacks are around divestment and I think they're really, really powerful. I think some of the hacks are around questioning value uh, and what is and is not valued, and there's some really interesting stuff around that with social impact investing, etc. Um, and then there's a whole lot of really great stuff going on in the legal sector where you just take the things that matter to them and like give the you know put the um, fear of God in them about those. So those sorts of hacks, as well as just trying to live a different way of being, um, I think combined hopefully will be that pincer movement to use a militaristic term um, that means that we actually do. Circle around and deal with that issue at the very centre.
7: I think just one thing to add to that in terms of um, in terms of the uh, those hacks is that there is a market there that that does create the situation that we're in at the moment. There's also a market there for getting us out of the situation we're in, and unfortunately, we don't have a perfectly operating market for that at the moment because you've actually got a federal government that wants to intervene and keep a, and shape the market the way it wants very much in favour of fossil fuel producers. And as long as that's going to be the case, that's always going to slow progress. If you left it up to the free market, for example, just in energy, um, you'd get a lot more coal power stations closing down a lot quicker. I mean, you get this example of Hazelwood, when angie French company decides, no, this doesn't make sense anymore, we're closing it down. The state government is caught off guard, scrambles to catch up with this. It's an example you can say where government's are either not paying attention to the markets or they're getting too heavy-handed and trying to do things like set up a new coal-fired power station in North Queensland. Just not should not be in that at all. So the sort of things that markets can do to contribute to changes are actually being hampered by politics rather than just by operations of the market.
3: Okay. I'm going to read out one from online. And Susie, we might just switch those two mics because these ones aren't very good. Um, So there's lots of amazing questions online. Thank you, everyone. The first one I'm going to read out is a really tricky one. Um, uh, Someone, some scientist whose name I can't find on here anymore, um, said at four degrees, the projection for world population is one billion people in terms of carrying capacity. So can the ends justify the means when that's the kind of stakes that we're talking about? What do you
4: have to say? (laughs) Look, I think, you know, there's a huge can of worms um, there. Um, The question of, um, you know, what is going to be the effect on the global population, I think, you know, and this kind of whole notion of existential crisis, uh, I think is very real. I think we do have to start talking about this and this is where we start getting into not kind of the... the, uh, negatives of emergency mindsets in terms of speed, but the negatives of emergency mindsets in terms of a kind of war-like mentality uh, where people go into a securitization mode and it becomes shut down and lockout uh, and huge inequities. And one of the things we know about emergencies is it leads to this notion of triage, which works really well when you walk into a hospital. Uh, but works less well when you're trying to work out who is going to be on the lifeboat or you know in the underground bunker in society and we've got some really um, massive uh, challenges there for democracy and we have to really make sure that we don't do a kind of lock everyone out type mentality which I don't need to emphasize is there's already predilections to such things um, one of the um,
5: that question scares
4: me Um <laughs>
5: Quite significantly, because I wonder the who gets sacrificed in the present to preserve a future, and 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 so if we do cling on to that, and and we need to be very careful about the present um, ecological climate justice, in order that we don't be, do the top down securitization, all of that stuff. So, I think we need to, the those those. Predictions of the future can be mobilising, they can bring action, but they can also bring paralysis and inequity.
1: Scary question, as well as I think means is really important, and that's where this whole debate was. Uh, Is the means going to be speedy, the transition going to be speedy or, or slow, and what? Who is part of that that whole movement, uh, that change we are seeking? Who is responsible for it, um, and who will be brought along and who will be left behind? Um, it's a it's the it's a massive question. And uh, if from the same example as I gave before, uh, those who were really underprivileged, who didn't have land, were given more support. Those who were renting were given more support. And uh, just because others who had capacity, they themselves were looking out for their own self. But I think the the mentality shouldn't move towards individual self-help, self-reliance. And um, we have not gone into the term resilience, but that's been promoted a lot. And... um, That's not what resilience is about, and the means has to be together, collective, rather than individual, top-down.
3: Okay, we'll take one more from online, and then we'll go back to the floor. So, the next question is, um, specifically for Lauren, can you say more about fake solutions?
4: Well, so just to kind of put my little lecturing hat on... Um, So there's a a big problem around adaptation can often be what's called maladaptation. So it either doesn't work, so partly because you rush off and you do a quick fix and it doesn't work in the long term, um, or because it creates so many other problems in society uh, that the world is left off in a worse state than if you hadn't acted at all. And so um, adding huge numbers of emissions, such as by air conditioning and bunker, Uh, for example, um, actually ends up being maladaptive. So they're the sorts of fake solutions. In terms of the mitigation space, you've got all sorts of things around, say, leaked emissions... So a whole lot of stuff, like, so take the bioenergy and carbon capture and storage kind of Bex type solution. That is a really, really long supply chain. And the assumption that you're going to grow stuff over here and then truck it over here and then burn it and then pop it in the ground and sort of, you know, put a little bit of tape over the top. You know, there's a whole lot of stu- uh, opportunities there for fugitive emissions that mean uh, that those end up being actually um, emissions... Uh, positive rather than emissions negative. So they're just some examples of things that don't work so they're either ineffective at what they're trying to do or they create too many additional problems.
3: I'm going to add one to that. Um, so I moved to Sydney in November and the air quality has been poor at best most of the time. And so these fake solutions are all around us and one of those is the idea that people can just wear masks and keep going about their lives and the, because they don't work. And the other one is that everyone should just stay at home. Um, that's a fake solution, partly because our housing is really poorly designed, but also because of the way that it operates in terms of social isolation. And so the people who are actually suffering with serious respiratory issues are then not able to communicate with people in their community. It becomes really invisibilized and the whole like community and social capital really declines. And so, you know, this is not a sub-story about me, but having moved there and had no friends, it's actually really... <laughs> it's really hard to make friends when everyone is staying home trying to stay inside out of the smoke and so that doesn't enable us to actually act on climate when everyone is staying at home and just being a keyboard warrior um so you know it's not just the big Bex um land transformation things that are fake solutions but they're in our everyday lives as well Uh, can i can i just really quickly Oh, yeah. Really quickly add to that, a fake
6: fake solutions are rife when it comes to children and youth because they very rarely have an opportunity to actually participate in decision making about the solutions. And one of those solutions is the school closure policy for code red days um, in high bushfire risk areas. And essentially, what that is doing is putting. However many tens of thousands of students, for example, in Sydney on the day when 600 schools were closed, um, in their homes, potentially without any adult supervision, any transport, any idea of how to respond to a bushfire because we know they haven't had any access to knowledge or information about that. Um, So that's another example of a fake solution that actually has potentially very disastrous disastrous consequences.
0: Hi. Um,
4: So I was wondering, since the government is not pushing down hard enough on the private sector to be held accountable for its impact on the environment, what would you suggest that especially the energy sector do of its own volition to really take responsibility and start mitigating for um, its activities?
7: Um, Well, the energy sector is doing that because it makes sense. Um, renewables are cheaper than new coal, new gas. In fact, they're cheaper now than existing coal and gas. Um, And they're definitely cheaper than nuclear when you want to talk about other fake solutions um, for this particular problem. Um, The issue in terms of the energy sector is now hitting a point where they need government intervention, not in terms of what, what they actually need is transmission. Um, And I was talking about this beforehand. It's very easy with the federal government to throw rocks at them and they deserve every rock that they get thrown at them on climate change. Um, But it's interesting. They're doing an interesting thing where they're saying one thing and doing another. I know. What are the odds? Politicians. (laughs) So at the same time that, you know, you're hearing um, uh, the, the the Liberal and National parties are tearing themselves apart over climate change policy, um, the federal government's also doing massive investment in um, upgrading interconnector transmission lines between South Australia and Victoria and between Queensland and New South Wales. They're also doing big investments into large hydroelectric storage, Snowy 2.0, but also the, I think it's called the Battery of the Nation, which Tasmania wants to do and have a massive link. None of that is going to support coal. In fact, it's going to hasten its demise. It's all about supporting renewables, but they don't want to talk about that. And in fact, that's what we need to see more of is large transmission because our system's not being set up for that from the energy sector. Energy companies want to see a big shift towards renewables. Um, even when you see, it was announced the other day, I think it was yesterday, um, the idea of a feasibility study into a coal-fired power station in Collinsville in, northeast, in northern Queensland, the, it's interesting to know the feasibility study runs for two years. Well Why two years? Because that's going to take us up to and past the next election. It's about keeping Queensland quiet and about keeping the National Party quiet. It's not necessarily about policy, because the feasibility study you could do probably now by ringing round those investors in large-scale uh, energy, because no one's going to put money into it. No one's going to put money as private sector money into a coal-fired power station now. So the, the, the issue is, unfortunately, the private sector is way ahead of where the government is and it's waiting for the government to catch up. The government's doing stuff, but it's hamstrung by these massive internal policy divisions.
8: Test, is this working? Okay. You can tell by my funny accent that I'm not from here. I'm sure. That was a joke. (laughs) But I did go up at the end with a question. I'm sorry. Um, So two things I wanted to bring up and ask you about. They are questions. Um, So the fastest way for us to solve this beast is to get everybody... On board. And by framing it as an emergency, we are disorienting a lot of people. I have no problem with thinking of it as an emergency. But I'm wondering if any of you have thought about other ways of framing it and talking about it. The other question I have is that George Monobot and Bill McKibben have both encouraged us to think about the importance of building communities, that that community building, that people want to belong, and that that is a very important part of dealing with climate change. As foreign as it might sound, that's what a lot of this is about. And I'd like to know your um, ideas about that. Thank you.
4: I'll just have a quick stab at the first one. Um, so one of the differences between emergency and disaster is that a disaster is done and emergency still has a small window of opportunity in which to act. Now, a window of opportunity is a positive term And the emergency element is the fact that that window is slowly closing or quite rapidly closing. So perhaps focusing on the window of opportunity to act, the need to do so quickly before it closes, might be that positive inflection, which keeps the seriousness of it, but does, as you say, help to galvanise people to come together.
5: I mean I can address the second question there's something what I mean I, I think most people would know the Paul Hawken book The Blessed Unrest and so the notion that, um, that that despite the appearance of politics going one way, the greater social movement, which is based on community, is occurring right now, where we have the transition towns, we have the small local neighbourhoods, we have all these people doing this different way of living and responding to what I would call a climate crisis or climate violence, potentially. Um, and so, and community is central to that. And it's the, it's, it's interesting, the distributive energy and the, the distributive social capital as well. So I, I, I don't know whether I heard it. The researchers in here on climate change will tell me. But, um, one thing that I heard is that, um, community connection is one of the greatest resilience factors for climate change. And I think that, that surprised me, but then didn't as well.
3: I'll have a stab at the communication one. So I also agree that we're in a climate emergency, um, but I do have hesitations about how effective that is as a mode of communication. I think some of the positives of it are that as we're seeing um, the more localised emergencies play out, for example, the bushfire crisis, I think that using the terminology that, sort of switches between the global issue and the local issue will enable people to like connect their lived experience to these you know grand narratives that the science is telling us so I think that's a real strength of it but we know whether it's emergency or some other kind of doomsday or um, kind of panic framing that a lot of people become so paralyzed in thinking about climate change and so overwhelmed uh, that that um, doesn't mobilize them so from what we know from climate communication research, whether it's about emergency specifically or other terminology, is that the people that that um, urgent framing speaks to are the ones who already get it and not the ones who don't. Um, and so I think that's one thing that we need to be thinking carefully about is how do we engage the people who who are too scared to um, come to terms with that and that actually requires not one-way communication of just calling at something, but actually more of those conversations with people about helping them unpack what does this mean for their lives. Um, and I was going to say one other thing, but I've forgotten, so let's go up there.
10: Um, so I can, um, identify as both a young person and an activist, and there, I think there's been a big wave um, within groups of people like myself in individual action and activism, and that's great, but... It also comes with taking on a lot of responsibility, which it's not always helpful. And become and there comes a point that, like I have taken on responsibility that I realistically can't make a big enough difference to actually act on. Um, so, can you discuss like system ta- system change versus individual action? Um, because it's obvious that we need system change, but in the meantime, is. Uh, is individual action actually going to make a big difference? Um, and should there come a point where young people stop taking on uh, an amount of responsibility that becomes unrealistic and actually is causing things like climate change anxiety um, and yeah, not actually mobilising people to, to take the right action and to
4: do things in a methodical and um, realistic way? Thank you for that question and observation. It's absolutely um, spot on. And I think it's um, particularly pertinent to all the young people who have shown such leadership, but also to all of us who are striving to do these things and wonder what the point is sometimes. Um, So, sorry, I'm really nerdy about these things. So one kind of framework that I use to think about these things, so there's, we keep hearing about scaling, right? Scaling up, scaling the, the kind of action and how do you scale from, you know, individuals upwards and I guess um, there's kind of two different modes here, or three really. So one is to scale out, and this is where we need to sort of really work the horizontal. So rather than f- forget about vertical, forget about you know levels of government and systems and institutions, but it's just that person to person, group to group, and linking them. So looking at the existing ones and building those alliances so that you very, very quickly start to get that kind of critical mass. So that's one thing that I know there's huge amounts of um, expertise in doing exactly that I can see. Uh, Lee, sitting behind you, yeah, like there's a whole lot of um, groups already expert on that. The next one is so that's called scaling out. But then scaling up is how do you do that? How do you build the enabling conditions? How do you actually build the responsibilities to look after you into those systems? And that requires a really, really sharp understanding of those existing systems. So if you know this one sort of thing, you want to spend your spare time studying study how institutions work, study politics, study how these systems work so that we can actually start to work out where those leverage points are. Um, So just as an example, um, so internally at RMIT, there's a whole lot of work going on through committees and subcommittees and working groups and all those sorts of institutional type things that sound kind of very ineffective and bureaucratic and whatnot but are slowly making some real changes around sustainability, and I know there can be huge amounts of frustration with those who are working around that, doing it sort of in that way, when there is, for example, a massive protest that presumes that nothing's going on inside the system, nothing's in there, where what they would really like is a conversation. Say, oh, could you tell us about what you're doing and what your objectives are and how you're going about it? And that would be a much more sort of effective thing. I mean, absolutely, we need protests, and I'm not... I don't want to kind of overemphasise this example, but it's just the sort of, I guess, need to
1: see what is going on internally and break it down into different groups, etc. So b- building on what Lauren has said, uh, what you are seeking is a political voice, a voice that gets heard higher up and uh, that uh, possibility of having a conversation and uh, seeking what's happening, how you can inform or you can, influence some of uh, some of that and that's where uh scaling out actually helps uh forming a a collab a network uh where there would be someone who has that capability or that connection that political voice that you need um or or many of many of the youths would require to uh, reach out I think that that is something I saw even at massive scale um, happen uh, in India where rural people who were completely illiterate had, couldn't read a word, had never set foot in schools. They could inform policy changes because of that scaling out or, and having a group of um lawyers, um, building professionals um, who actually sat together and discussed, wrote letters to the uh, government and government had to listen to them.
3: I'm going to read out one from online and then we might take two more from the floor. Um, So the next one is for Bronwyn and it's, can you say more about how to listen to the poor and to the earth?
5: We're trying to do it. And something that's really evident is that there are so many cultural practices, presumptions, and barriers of language that make it difficult. And so, and, and just also, um, one of the thoughts I had in response to your question is that um, Hannah Arendt and and the Ignatian practice of contemplative action has been really important in the journey that we're doing there. And also, I think it helps with finding what points of agency and what what. What leverage points you can locate. Um, I think lis- li- listening to the cry of the earth and the cry of the poor is requires um, a relationship, and the relationship is central to that. Otherwise, you can't actually listen. And so, and our job is to amplify the, fly those voices. So, but also when you're listening to those in a twin way. Um, particularly with our colleagues who work in Northern Territory and work in outreach on the peri-urban fringe as well as at Mount Druitt, you're listening to quite toxic cries of the earth. You're listening to a lot of damaged earth and people living and embedded within it. So they, they start to blend together. And I think that's something that we're trying to think through and they seem to be... Um, the risk is that they will get more... As these impacts start, so I mean I'll go back to the contemplative action, and having we're building, um, we're trying to build common practices within the organisation, so that we can share this reflective listening, and doing it together, and then then we feed it back into advocacy. And I have some examples of this that we how we always lead every single um, meeting with a reflection. And i would noticed it has made a difference in the feedback loops of the people feel free to share more and to go a bit more intimately into their experiences, and then it can goes it does often goes into a whole different way that we take on our advocacy strategy.
11: My question is about the relationship between the climate emergency, uh, the Green New Deal, uh, the global debt problem that we have, and the next global financial crisis, and social cohesion. As $250 trillion worth of debt that we have at the moment globally uh, all comes due on one day in the next global financial crisis, there's going to be jobs lost. There's going to be mortgages go into default. There's going to be families in stress. How do we, how do we maintain social cohesion under those conditions um, when we're likely to have the right-wing press, the Andrew Bolts and those kinds of people and others, point the finger at the Green New Deal and the renewable energy revolution and the increasing cost of energy for economic contraction. Um, so, it's and many of the people who voted for... Um, who will have voted for action on the climate emergency are middle-class aspirational people, and they are the ones who are likely to be affected and may become hostile towards the Green New Deal and its proponents. Um, I think that's a serious conversation we
7: need to have. I think there's a really good example of that playing out this northern winter already, which is the sort of... um because I can't speak French either, it's the uh, the yellow jackets in uh, France, in Macron's France, um, who are rising up and and, and definitely pushing back against uh, investment in renewables and investment in environmental um, uh, programs because they see that as taking away from 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 their standing and not addressing their their core issues, which are around um, uh, increasing unemployment and, and and lack of state help. So. It's unavoidable, in a way. You are going to get that. But what things like the Green New Deal give us an opportunity to do is to say, actually, we've got a thought-through program for this. So the one thing to remember about the last big financial crisis is that it gave rise to the Occupy movement as well, which was great at identifying who was at fault, but not necessarily great at coming up with alternative solutions. And the Green New Deal, because it's already started to think about that sort of stuff, is an opportunity for us to be able to say, actually, we've got another way of doing this. We're not the ones who led you to this particular circumstance now. That's been the, um, the the neoliberal governments that have done this over decades. Now you might want to think about other opportunities for this. So it's a threat and an opportunity. I think you can see it as a bit of both of that.
11: would help us to pay down debt or will it exacerbate that?
7: I don't necessarily think... Like, for example, if you see, for example, a mass investment in renewable energy, it's not necessarily going to add to the debt problem. And it's about... Debt, from an economic perspective, isn't necessarily a bad thing. It, it's 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 what the world runs on uh, at the moment. Um, and, there's the yeah, OK, it's a bit of magical thinking in terms of how economics works for this sort of stuff. But it... it if you get the right kind of debt, if you like, in terms of investment in renewables and investment in sustainable um, uh, infrastructure and so on, then that's not necessarily a bad thing. It's, it's consumer debt, which is causing the, the massive problems that we have at the moment, or forecast to have the, the big problems in the, in the short to medium term. So I think if you can make the argument that there are, there are different kinds of debt and there's some debt that we do want to take on in terms of investing for the long-term future of our society, that's the argument you've got to make.
3: Thank you. Um, we've got one last quick question up the back. There were
6: actually two questions okay. and there was a nice bit of negotiation here. Okay.
3: <laughs> Great. Community, community questions? So <laughs> we tried to merge the questions. Um,
12: uh, my question is...
3: Can you hold the mic closer? Uh, oh, sorry. Yeah. Um, I missed the start, so I'm not sure if it was mentioned, but how do you see Indigenous people locally and globally being um,
12: a part of the discussion on the climate emergency and
5: actions to be taken. Um, For example, different agricultural practices.
12: Um, So there's less inequality in food waste, for example, and um, and not just outside the cities but also within the cities as well. Yeah. Where do you see that fitting in?
3: Is that both the questions or do you want to add a bit to it or...? Yeah,
12: I just all right, great. It. Yep. yeah. Thanks. Cheers. Um, so, in the sense of climate justice, you know, there's as of 2018, uh, over 820 million people that are suffering from mal that are malnourished. They suffer from chronic hunger. Um, there's, you know, um, uh, five million children under the age of five that that suffer from malnutrition-related causes annually, um, and and. You know, there is just a vast, unequal distribution of um, the global um, food resources, you know. So we've got people suffering from, you know, um, uh, they just don't even have sufficient access to calories. And so where is the justice there to both, you know, uh, I guess... You know the uh, vulnerable people in these developing regions. Yeah. You know. So, what about the justice to them? Thank you so much for the opportunity yep, to ask.
3: Thank them. you. Um, you're lo- in luck because Lauren does amazing work with farmers and on priorities around nature and bushfires. I'm going to handball the second one to you. Yeah.
4: The right okay. So, in a nutshell, uh, <laughs> so you're absolutely right. Food justice has to be part of climate justice. Uh, there's no question about that. Um, the food issue is, uh, I think, the, sorry, let me say this. The food system is very complex. On the agricultural side of things, that's going to be a big new frontier on mitigation. You can already see that emerging. It's focused on a few kind of um, product substitutions at the moment. Oh, replace beef with, you know, vegan sausages or replace you know this with this or... We have to move past a product substitution to start to look at diets. We have to start looking at the whole thing. The food system is much more problematic than just agriculture. I think farmers kind of cop it for the entire food system. We have food processors, food manufacturers, food retailers. There's a whole, like, foodie kind of culture. All of that has to be tackled as part of it because then you start to see things like food waste. A third of the food gets wasted. You start to see the way that nutrients are deliberately stripped out of food because they're trying to make you know, X products, starch, et cetera, et cetera. So there's a whole lot of room for improvement and low-hanging fruit there. What I'd say about that and also the Indigenous question is um, fixing these problems, so Indigenous sovereignty, dealing with that, giving back, creating um, treaties, creating ways to actually relate in a meaningful, practical way uh, with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Island peoples in Australia is going to actually provide some of the foundation we need for adaptation and for mitigation. How we do that, I can't answer that now, Um, but... Same with the food system. Tackling that is going to give us the foundation we need. It will help reduce emissions and it will help to build up what they call generic resilience, well-being, that we need to deal with any number of climate change impacts. So all of these good things are part of what has to be part of the general overall transformation. Um, And we all need to be able to um, divide and conquer, work on the bits that we're good at, um, while also remaining cognizant of the fact that all of the pieces are needed to actually crack this prob- problem.
5: I'll just be really quick. I think that that question about First Nations in Australia, I think that should be the... What would what would decolonising the climate emergency mean? What would it look like? How would it change? And especially thinking through um, First Nations people of Australia have been under a climate emergency or ecological emergency since invasion, but also, so I, I think for me, I presume it's implicit and the foundation of climate justice in Australia, and so, which means when something's foundational, you can forget to mention it and properly explore it. And I also think for me and for um, non-Indigenous Australians, it's about an examination. It's not just the appropriation of Indigenous knowledge; is like suddenly looking to cultural burning is like you're going to save us so come in and, and actually looking to, turning the lens upon ourselves looking at our own practices although I did like Victor Stephenson's statement on um, Q&A last week where he said the solution was that the rest uh, us non-Indigenous people need to get out of the driver's seat and they can be in the passenger seat for a while and they, he also said and we wouldn't leave you behind unlike you guys <laughs>
1: Just to answer to the second question, because uh, the um, the first question has been well answered. Um, the there has been huge inequality um, in terms of uh, what is covered, even in media, or what we turn blind eye to. Uh, in Africa, so many people have been dying for 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 decades, uh, and we are starting to talk about drought because it's right up close to us here and we, we are seeing it. So yes, there is a huge um, inequity in the system and what is the answer to that? Um, I, I have no, no answer. Um, but at least we all are um, acknowledging it, uh, which, is, which is a good start.
3: Okay, so it is 7.45.
1: I had planned that
3: we would finish earlier, but here we are. Um, Thank you all for coming tonight. Um, Obviously, talking about climate change is always incredibly complex and really tiring and challenging, and so... I just wanted to really reiterate our appreciation for you coming along and spending your free time, Um, also to indulge us while we have a platform to express our opinions. Um, Thank you for asking really, really interesting and provocative and on-topic questions. Um, For those that we didn't get to answer, you can um, tweet at us if you want. Um, I can't guarantee that anyone will respond, but it will be out there (laughs) um, in the public sphere. Um, You are welcome to come down and have a chat to us um, as you're leaving as well. And yeah, thank you again for coming and thank you to all our wonderful panelists.
0: Thank you for joining us. You've been listening to Climactic, the flagship podcast of the Climactic Collective a podcast network dedicated to lifting the voices of the climate community. You can find out more about the people behind Climactic and all the shows we produce at climactic.fm. We are a social enterprise podcast network, and we greatly appreciate your support. You can find a link to our Pausable where you can support us directly in the show notes of this episode or from our website. Thank you for listening. And from the whole Climactic Collective, keep up the great work and take care of each other in these climactic times. The Climactic Collective This show is produced by Hear Media, a boutique audio agency in NARM, Melbourne. To learn more and get in touch, head to hearmedia.studio. That's H-E-R-E media.studio.